Gabriel Batelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 123. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash The Week in Doubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Still think it should be Android device. But anyway, uh, I apologize if I sound like I have a cold. I mean, even when I don't have a cold, I still sound like I have a cold. But today, I think I sound extra stuffy. But before I go off on some meandering dissertation on my sinuses, I'll rein myself back in. Speaking of Audible, I noticed there's been a few clicks or impressions now, but I still haven't gotten paid by Audible. Uh, I think it's a cookie thing. So if you do take me up on the Audible trial offer, please do it through that Week in Doubt URL, and I think you have to make sure cookies are enabled too. Uh, All right, thanks in advance. And before I do the Twitter shoutouts, it looks like I finally have a new iTunes review. And uh, man, am I behind with the uh, reading the reviews. This one looks like it's from May, but at least it's May of 2014. Uh, They gave me five stars, so the show's still holding strong at four and a half out of five stars. It looks like their iTunes handle is made up out of symbols or emoticons. We have a smiley face, smiley face, smiley face, and then a fish that appears to be made up of less than and greater than signs. But they gave me a very nice review, and I'd like to read it now. Thought-provoking and insightful look at a variety of news and topics in religion, delivered in a calm, friendly, and easygoing host. Fun for the whole family. Uh, Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I don't know if the fish signifies that you're a Christian, but it reminds me to emphasize the point that even though I'm a non-believer, from the inception of this show... It was supposed to be a show for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and I really mean the whoever. And I love when I find out that there's believers who are listening too, so uh, if that is the case, thank you. And I just noticed there's another new review, and this one's from June 25, and it's by Speedwalker5. They only gave me three stars, and it says, okay. And see, this is proof that I always try to be fair and intellectually honest, and I even read the somewhat negative or mediocre reviews as well. Even if I had a horrible review, I'd read that as well, uh, just to keep things real. But here's what they had to say. I have almost deleted this podcast a couple of times, but I really like Phil's voice. It reminds me of an old boyfriend who is no longer with us. That's airy. Um... Sometimes Phil is also interesting, but sometimes he rambles on. That's probably true. Also, his interviewing skill is a bit lacking. He talks too much when he should be asking questions and listening. That's also probably true. But in fairness to me, I've only done two interviews. I think I interviewed uh, C-Web from C-Web Sunday School once. And I also interviewed Alexander Nye, the uh, playwright who penned the uh the play son of man um and congrats to alex again on a successful kickstarter campaign and i just got an update yesterday that they're uh, almost done with casting so that's pretty cool but uh i think she makes a good point with the interviewing thing 
um, as I'm, I'm not a journalist, I never went to journalism school, but uh, as I understand it, interviewing 101 is that the interview shouldn't be about you, it should be about the guest, and even if you're kind of champing at the bit to say something, um, you should kind of hold your tongue and let the guest do the talking. And I definitely uh, violated that cardinal rule. And to be honest, um, I shall not recant. And I would probably, I would probably do it again. Um, because when I do an interview, I like having an almost really casual kind of, uh, late night dorm room or sharing, uh, some beers with a friend type of, uh, feel to the interview. I want to be real. I want both sides to be contributing to the conversation. I want us to both share our experiences so um, more than trying to be uh, a kind of professional interviewer, I'm just trying to, uh, am I about to swear? I think I am. Uh, shoot the shit <laughs> with another like-minded person, you know, and just kind of trade experiences or, or uh, insights. But I would like to even have maybe some believers on the show too. I do plan to do the occasional interview going forward. And... Um, what I'd like to do is, is find a way to have a really polite discourse, a conversation with a believer. And instead of trying to one-up each other or get into this my team versus your team mentality, I'd like to interview a believer and try to find common ground and at the same time be very open and honest about where our worldviews collide or differ. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. But I'm glad you haven't deleted the podcast, at least. That's pretty cool. I hope you continue to listen. And uh, it's a little... Even though I'm a non-believer, I have to admit, I'm s still a little spooked. I get that someone walking over uh, my grave type of feeling. Is that how the saying goes? Thinking that I might sound like someone's deceased significant other. But, uh... <laughs> all right. Weird. But... Uh, Thanks for leaving the review, though. I appreciate it. I'm not being sarcastic. Uh, I want people to leave fair and honest reviews. Um, I'd rather have someone leave an honest review than say something positive that they might not mean or whatever. But if you don't mean it, you probably wouldn't bother to leave a positive review. But anyway, here I am rambling. <laughs> so I'll cut myself off there and uh, continue on with the show. All right, so I'll quickly do the Twitter shoutouts. Nigel Hickey at Nigel Hickey. Life, the universe, and everything. Just trying to figure it all out. You and me both, man. All right, then we have Dawkins Dog. Richard doesn't realize I sneak into his study to use his computer. Don't tell him I'll eat your slippers. Follow back and I might even sniff your butt. Uh, I think that's the first time I've used the word butt, B-U-T-T, -T, on the show. Uh, and I like how his cover photo has... Dawkins dog versions of some of Richard Dawkins books, including Richard Dawkins, the dog delusion or Richard Dawkins dog, the dog delusion. That's pretty funny. So I think I'll do a couple of news stories later, but first I want to take a more in-depth look at a topic I mentioned in passing last week. So last week I was talking about some awful news stories uh, that were in the headlines recently involving beheadings by Islamic extremists. And also I touched on Islamic and Jewish relations through the centuries. 
and also the kind of history of persecution that the Jewish people have experienced through the centuries. And I talked about briefly in passing their uh, persecution by the Babylonians, Persians, Seleucid Syrians, the Romans. And I mentioned in passing how I intentionally left Egyptians off the list because of the problematic nature of trying to study the Exodus story from, from an objective archaeological perspective. That from the mainstream scholarship perspective, there's serious doubts whether the Exodus story even happened or whether or not uh, the Hebrews were ever slaves in Egypt. Never mind the idea that they may have been forced to build the pyramids, as we find suggested in popular culture. So I thought I'd examine that today, because I think that's a, a biggie. In Judeo-Christianity, uh, when we think of the Old Testament, one of the big stories from the Old Testament we think of is the Exodus story. Uh, the story of the escape from bondage of the Jewish people out of Egypt. And we know that the story of the Exodus is obviously very important to the Jewish people. It ties into the very important festival of Passover. And also I would say that the Exodus story is important to Christians as well in general, and specifically groups like African-American Christians who saw a parallel between their own struggles, the struggle to rise out of slavery, the struggle for civil rights, a parallel between that and... Uh, the story of the oppression of the Hebrew people under uh, Egyptian rule. I think it might have been suggested in the old Cecil B. DeMille uh, 1950s movie with Charlton Heston, the, the Ten Commandments. Actually, uh, Cecil B. DeMille did two versions of the Ten Commandments. I think the first one was in the 20s. Uh, and I think we see it in other movies as well, images of Hebrew slaves um, working on uh, the building of of pyramids and things like that. But I would say that the scholarly consensus now is that the Egyptian pyramids were not built by Hebrew slaves, nor were they built by slaves at all. We have what's known as the Giza Necropolis, that area along the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt, that includes iconic monuments such as the three great pyramid complexes, the Sphinx, and also some cemeteries or burial sites uh, where workers who built the pyramids were interred. Um, supposedly, they were given honorific burials in close proximity to the pyramids, and contrary to being harshly treated, they were supposedly treated relatively well, given quality medical care, uh, fed ver very well, given uh, beer to drink. I think beer was a pretty common uh, drink in ancient Egypt. And they weren't slaves. Supposedly the building of the pyramids was something like a giant civic project. With uh, Egyptians taking turns working in shifts that lasted months. I believe uh, then going back to their livelihoods, including farmers who would contribute by laboring during their uh, off-season or off-seasons. And just to give a rough time frame, I believe the construction of the Giza pyramids ceased sometime around the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE. Uh, the oldest and largest of the Giza pyramids is the Pyramid of Khufu, or Cheops. I believe Cheops is the Greek version or variant of the name. And supposedly its construction was concluded around 2560 BCE, or before Common Era. So if Jewish slaves did build the pyramids, uh, where does this idea come from? One of the first things I did was to search some of my digital versions of the Bible, I know that sounds kind of weird. Here I am, the host of an atheist podcast, and I'm talking about pouring over the uh, Bible. 
But hey, if you want to criticize something, I think you should be familiar with the material instead of just flinging accusations and criticisms without knowing what you're talking about. So I did a search for the word pyramid. It doesn't appear in any of the copies of the Bible that I have, at least the digital copies. And that seems to be the consensus online as well. The Bible never mentions uh, pyramids, doesn't seem at all to contain the word pyramid. In fairness, uh, part of my research was not just combing through uh, the books of Exodus, Genesis, and Numbers, but I also listened to an old episode of Skeptoid, um, with Brian Dunning. It's funny why I tuned into the most recent episode of Skeptoid, there was a robotic voice in place of Brian Dunning. So I don't know if he went off somewhere to uh, serve time for his misdeeds. Um, I don't want to drag his name through the mud uh, again because I respect Brian Dunning and Skeptoid. Uh, but not long ago, I mentioned an old scrape with the law he got into involving eBay. But anyway, before I say more than I want to, uh, like I said, I'm not trying to assassinate Brian Dunning's character. On the contrary, despite whatever he's got himself into in the past, I really appreciate the work he does with Skeptoid. And it was a great episode on whether or not Hebrew slaves built the pyramids. And he talks about the myth uh, supposedly stemming back to the ancient historian Herodotus. Herodotus lived in the 6th century BCE, I believe. Uh, he was a Greek historian, and although Herodotus' writings help us glean a lot about the ancient world, it's also thought that his writings aren't completely reliable. It seems to be the case that he may have had a penchant for exaggeration. And on top of that, the writing style at the time, people weren't concerned with journalistic accuracy the way we are today. Um, so often exaggeration or creative interpretation was mixed into history. And paradoxically, Herodotus has been referred to as both the father of history and the father of lies. And as far as his uh, mention of the pyramids, I've encountered contradictory opinions online. Some people say, uh, and I think Brian Dunning may even have said this, that he mentions Hebrew slaves building the Great Pyramid. But on the other hand... People uh, defend Herodotus online and say that, in responsible fashion, he mentions 100,000 workers building a single pyramid in 30 years, but he never specifies that they were Jews or slaves. So is Herodotus to blame for this idea of Jews building the Great Pyramid or pyramids? Perhaps not. I don't know. Um, the general impression I get online is that Herodotus doesn't specifically mention Jews or slaves, but rather workers. And then if this is true, I also encountered a claim that the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, while recounting the hardship of the Jewish people, mentions that they were forced to work for the Egyptians, including building pyramids. So maybe Josephus is partly the blame as well. But if my memory serves me right, I think uh, some of Josephus's writings on the Egyptians was partially based on the writings of uh, an Egyptian priest who had written a few centuries earlier, I think. But actually, here's a quote from the histories of Herodotus regarding the Egyptian pyramids, and he's talking about the Pharaoh Cheops. He compelled all the Egyptians to work for him. To some he assigned the task of dragging stones from the quarries and the Arabian mountains to the Nile. And after the stones were ferried across the river in boats, he organized others to receive and drag them to the mountains called Libyan. 
They worked in gangs of a hundred thousand men, each gang for three months. For ten years, the people wore themselves out building the road over which the stones were dragged. Work which was, in my opinion, not much lighter at all than the building of the pyramid. For the road is nearly a mile long and twenty yards wide, and elevated at its highest to the height of sixteen yards. And it is all of stone polished and carved with figures. The aforesaid ten years were to building of this road, and of the underground chambers in the hill where the pyramids stand. These the king meant to be burial places for himself, and surrounded them with water bringing in a channel from the Nile. The pyramid itself was twenty years in the making. Its base is square, each side eight hundred feet long, and its height is the same. The whole is of stone polished and most exactly fitted. There is no block of less than thirty feet. So there we have it in his own words, uh, or at least the English translation of his words. He doesn't seem to mention either slaves or Hebrews, but rather simply workers. But he does describe the work of those who constructed the Great Pyramid as being quite grueling. So I don't know if I'm contradicting myself there. At the beginning of the episode, I described the workers of the pyramids being treated fairly well, even giving honored burials and medical care and things like that. And that's probably true, but at the same time, it was grueling work. And I think I recall archaeologists even talking about how they could tell from the skeletons of the buried workers how grueling and taxing the physical labor must have been hauling all those stones, etc. I think many had um, bent spines and things like that. Even though it's been described as a civic project, I, I imagine it probably would have been uh, rather unadvisable to say no to the pharaoh. While I'm at it, I might as well give you that uh, Josephus quote as well. Egyptians enjoined them to cut a great number of channels for the river and to build walls for their cities and ramparts that they might restrain the river and hinder its waters from stagnating upon its running over its own banks. They set them also to build pyramids and by all this wore them out and forced them to learn all sorts of mechanical arts and to accustom themselves to hard labor. And that's supposedly Josephus referring to Egyptians using uh, Hebrew slave labor. But according to modern archaeology, it would seem that Josephus got it wrong and that the Hebrew people did not build the pyramids. So were there even Hebrew slaves in Egypt at all? Well, it seems like one of the first mentions we have of Jews in ancient Egypt is recounted in something known as the Elephantine papyri, papyri being uh, the plural of papyrus. And now I'll resort to good old Wikipedia again, but uh, here's a description of the Elephantine papyri as it regards to the, or as they regard to the uh, Jewish community in ancient Egypt. In the Elephantine papyri, caches of legal documents and letters written in Aramaic amply document the lives of a community of Jewish soldiers stationed there as part of a frontier garrison in Egypt for the Archimedes Empire. Established at Elephantine in about 650 BCE, during Manasseh's reign, these soldiers assisted Pharaoh Semeticus I, I think, in his Nubian campaign. Their religious system shows strong traces of Babylonian polytheism, something which suggests to certain scholars that the community was of mixed Judeo-Samaritan origins. They maintained their own temple, functioning alongside that of the local deity 
Chunum, or Chunum, C-H-N-U-M. The documents cover the period 495 to 399 BCE. Uh, then there's also uh, a passage here that reads, The Hebrew Bible also records that a large number of Jews took refuge in Egypt after the destruction of the kingdom of Judah in 597 BCE. So that would probably be roughly around the time of the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the first temple, I believe, I think. So there in that description of the Elephantine papyri, there's this description of these kind of Persian Jewish warriors in Egypt uh, that's in keeping with this idea that the Hebrews weren't slaves in Egypt, that but they were more like mercenaries. It talks about them serving with the Pharaoh during the uh, Nubian campaign. And if you notice some of those dates, 650 BCE, 495 to 399 BCE, the destruction of the kingdom of Judah, 597 BCE, I think that's the uh, secular uh, estimate, 597 BCE. And uh, keep in mind that the Giza pyramids were completed much, much earlier, like I said, uh, somewhere in the middle of the third millennium BCE. So the time is totally wrong for the possibility of Hebrews building the pyramids. And uh, Brian Dunning mentions in that uh, Skeptoid episode that he did on whether or not Hebrew slaves built the pyramids, um, that supposedly, ironically, I, and I think this is from the Elephantine papyri, that there's evidence that Jewish Egyptians had Egyptian slaves uh, rather than the other way around, supposedly, at least during that uh, time period described in the papyri. I think it's in the Cecil B. DeMille uh, Ten Commandments movie that Ramses the Great is depicted as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And I think I've even heard reputable archaeologists or Egyptologists like like Bob Breyer talk about the possibility of Ramses being the uh, Pharaoh of the Exodus. And there's been a lot of different proposals that if the Exodus even happened, who may have been the uh, Pharaoh at the time, because the biblical account doesn't really give us a lot to go on. But if it was Ramses, there definitely uh, weren't pyramids being built, at least not um, the Giza pyramids, because as I mentioned, uh, those were finished around the third uh, millennium BCE. And um, Ramses the Great, reigned from around 1279 to 1213 uh, BCE. That would be a 19th dynasty. And sometimes you'll hear this uh, talk of Israelites in Egypt, you know, when talking about the Exodus or whatever. But it looks like the first mention of the name Israel we have dates back to an Egyptian uh, stela, and specifically um, dates back to 1209 BCE. I think the Stila kind of, well, it's kind of boasting the victories of a particular pharaoh. And at one point it reads, And Israel is laid waste, and his seed is not. So that does seem to be uh, Egyptian proof that at some point there was some kind of conflict in that the Egyptians conquered uh, Israelites in battle. So it looks like we might not even have people identifying themselves as Israelites till about early 2nd millennium BCE, which would, of course, be after the time of the pyramids, at least the famous iconic pyramids, you know, the three pyramid complexes at Giza. I think um, there are many other pyramids, maybe 
something like 155, I think I'm going by memory. Um, and also uh, the neighboring uh, Nubians also, um, I think, were uh, pyramid builders to a lesser extent. And there was a succession of uh, Nubian pharaohs actually at a time. So although we can probably safely say Hebrews did build the pyramids, I can't say with certainty that there weren't Jewish slaves because the Egyptians were military conquerors and it was fairly common for them to take slaves and basically binding their conquered foes into slavery. And as that Stela suggests, uh, supposedly they crushed Israel or they clashed with Israelites militarily. They very well may have taken some of them as slaves. And although being a non-believer, uh, and just objectively speaking, I don't believe that the Bible should be looked at as a history book by any means or any stretch of the imagination. But there probably are kernels of historical truth in some parts of the Bible. And the fact that there's repeated mention of Jews in servitude to Egyptians. I mean, that probably reflects that there is some truth in, in there somewhere. But nevertheless, it seems there's a dearth or lack of evidence to back up the story of the Exodus. Uh, and here's a brief little passage from Wikipedia on the Exodus. And this is part of an article entitled The History of Jews in Egypt. The book of Genesis and the book of Exodus describe a period of Hebrew servitude in Egypt during decades of sojourn in Egypt. The escape of well over a million Israelites from the Delta or the three months journey through the wilderness to Sinai. Although most histories of ancient Israel no longer consider information about the Exodus recoverable or even relevant to the story of Israel's emergence due to the complete lack of direct evidence for its historicity. And here's another interesting paragraph that has to do with not only the historicity of the Exodus, but the origins of the Israelites as well. A century of research by archaeologists and Egyptologists has found no evidence which can be directly related to the Exodus, captivity, and the escape and travels through the wilderness. And most archaeologists have abandoned the archaeological investigation of Moses and the Exodus as a quote-unquote fruitless pursuit. A number of theories have been put forward to the account of the origins of the Israelites, and despite differing details, they agree on Israel's Canaanite origins. The culture of the earliest Israelite settlements is Canaanite. Their cult objects are those of the Canaanite god El. The pottery remains in the local Canaanite tradition, and the alphabet used is early Canaanite. And almost the sole marker distinguishing the Israelite villages from Canaanite sites is an absence of pig bones. Although whether even this is an ethnic marker or is due to other factors remains a matter of dispute. And there's a mention of the Canaanite god El. And it's thought that Judaism arose out of Canaanite or uh, Mesopotamian polytheism. And eventually El is mentioned not only as a chief deity, but he becomes the only deity and we end up with a monotheistic religion. And in some versions of the Bible, we still see the word El for God, sometimes Elohim for God, which uh, apologists might say is akin to the royal we, while others suggest that Elohim is plural, and it's a reference to the polytheistic roots of Judaism, or uh, the polytheistic roots of the concept of the god El. So to reiterate, no, it doesn't look like Jewish slaves built the pyramids, but could there have been an actual exodus? Well, obviously, even if there was, I personally 
severely dealt the supernatural elements of the story. The magical plagues, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Some people have tried to come up with scientific explanations for those miracles, like crosswinds separating the sea and um, bacteria causing the waters to turn red and certain natural events driving frogs onto land and killing animals and things like that. But it seems like scholars believe that this mass exodus described in the Bible and the numbers discussed are just too large or maybe maybe there was some kind of exodus on a smaller scale if there was even a significant population of Jewish slaves ever in Egypt. And I, I believe the Bible seems to insinuate that this exodus probably would have occurred in the second millennium BCE, where if it happened at all, modern archaeology seems to indicate that that it probably would have been in the first millennium BCE, because in the second, the Egyptians were rather strong and they wouldn't really have had any need to fear a Jewish uprising um, Canaan was still supposedly part of the Egyptian Empire, but supposedly Egypt was significantly weaker in the first millennium BCE as opposed to the second. But who knows? Um, but they did build the pyramids, and I at least doubt that, like I said to reiterate, doubt the supernatural elements of the Exodus story. Uh, so that's my take on it. So how about a couple of quick news stories? All right, so... Just to warn you, uh, if you're a blasphemous heathen like me, you'll probably get a kick out of this story. If you're a believer or a practicing Christian, you may find this story uh, very offensive and may want to tune out now. Um, <clears throat> but I originally found out about this story, I think, through the Huffington Post. But I'm looking at an MTV article right now. I think that's the first time I have ever gotten a news story from MTV. But uh, here we go. Here's the title. The title alone you might find offensive if you're a Christian. Teen faces two years in jail for face-humping a Jesus statue. <laughs> yep, I did just say that. In Pennsylvania, a sexual joke involving a Jesus statue has one 14-year-old in a lot of legal trouble. The unnamed Everett, Pennsylvania teen was in front of a Christian service organization called Love in the Name of Christ. When he saw a kneeling Jesus statue, he took advantage of the deity's compromised position by simulating oral sex with the statue, taking pictures of the lewd joke and posting it on Facebook where the authorities found them. And just to let you know, there is a, a picture, or pictures rather, of it online and uh, very odd. I actually heard uh, the Young Turks covering this story. I think it was Ben Mankiewicz was joking about how how can you position Jesus like that and not expect you know kids to uh, do something like this. It's almost inviting it, and it is kind of an odd position. Uh, it almost looks like maybe it's supposed to be Jesus. Uh, you know, there's a story about the agony in the garden before Jesus is to be uh, crucified when he's kind of praying and wringing his hands. It looks like maybe that's what they were going for, but Jesus is kind of kneeling down and leaning forward, uh, partially bent over like a stone wall. It's a very odd position for the statue, I think. I have to admit, even though I'm a non-believer, you know, I was raised Catholic, and it's, it is kind of shocking, you know, um, I think somewhere in me still, I must still have some of that uh, Catholic programming. 
that was uh, ingrained in me from an early age. Because it is, it is kind of shocking when you look at the pictures, when you see this person pressing their crotch into the face of a, uh, a holy statue. And the irreverent side of me uh, gets a kind of dark kick out of it. But there's a part of me that's even kind of taken back by it. And to continue with the article, as Mother Jones points out, a 1972 Pennsylvania law criminalizes the desecration of a sacred object or defacing, damaging, polluting, or otherwise physically mistreating in a way that the actor knows will outrage the sensibilities of persons likely to observe or discover the action. The boy is now being charged with the crime, and if convicted, he'll face two years of juvenile detention. Since he's a minor, most of the details about this case have been sealed. But there is one organization coming to his defense. Truth Wins Out, an organization that advocates for LGBT rights, has previously argued that the law is unconstitutional. The law technically violates this establishment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Humping a Jesus statue is pretty immature, but doesn't warrant two years in juvenile detention. Let us know what you think in the comments. Well, in full disclosure, before I continue, I have to admit, when I was a teenager, probably in my late teens, uh, maybe near the end of, of my uh, high school years, I was in this stage of my spiritual or philosophical evolution that I would describe as this kind of... Uh, and I think we see this a lot with... Uh, budding young non-believers there's this almost stage you go through where you're mad at god for not existing and i think that's kind of where i was in my uh, late teens um my reason was telling me that religions were made up and still i think i did have this kind of resentment or feeling of betrayal you know i had been indoctrinated into this religion i was fed this whole kind of supernatural cosmology um you know, promised that, you know, told that there was a divine creator, that Jesus died for my sins, that I was going to um, go somewhere when I died. And my reason led me to uh, question those supernatural claims or uh, tenets. Um, and I would act out sometimes, you know, I'd get in fights with, uh, or, you know, verbal, heated verbal arguments with religious friends, etc. And I remember uh, there's this church in the town where I grew up uh, called St. Margaret's. And there's this huge hill. And at the top of it, there's a life-size or bigger-than-life-size statue of a crucified Christ flanked by uh, two saints or apostles, I think. And um, during the wintertime, kids used to love to go to the top of that hill and slide down. And I think it might have been like a snow day or something like that. And some of my friends and I were at the top of that hill. And I grabbed Jesus's knees and started doing pull-ups. And uh, I remember my religious friends were like, oh my God. You know, they were so freaked out that I would dare uh, like disrespect this man-made statue or whatever. Um, but it is funny. And like I just said, even me, because of my upbringing, when I see someone kind of disrespecting a religious statue, um, I think not only might it bother me to some degree because, you know, I'm trying to be considerate of the feelings of believers, even though I'm not a believer, but I think there's still this kind of superstitious reaction, gut reaction that's been instilled in me. I'm like, like, oh my God, you can't do that to Jesus or whatever. But then also is this very kind of, uh, kind of dark and irreverent sense of humor I have for things like that. 
and uh, and I think charging the kid for this is kind of stupid in a number of ways. I, I think his biggest crime is I, I don't think that humping a man-made statue is um, a crime or or any type of moral transgression. If it is a moral transgression, it, it's only so because it's perhaps inconsiderate of the feelings of others and you know that it may upset or hurt uh, people who happen to be believers. Um, but it's not like I, I think that the statue itself possesses any divine properties or anything like that. Um, in a bizarre way, I think you could probably even argue that it's a kind of freedom of religion or freedom of expression thing. The kid's probably saying, you know, in, in his own vulgar way, that, hey man, this is just a statue. This thing isn't God. This is plaster or concrete or plastic or whatever it's made out of. And also, I think it's kind of, if we look at it from a, for a minute, it's funny talking about looking at this story from a serious perspective, but from like a serious kind of theological perspective, um, if we look at the history of the Judeo-Christian religion, you know that... Um, Jews were forbidden, and obviously Judaism is the mother religion of Christianity. Jews were forbidden from making graven images. Um, you weren't supposed to uh, make representations of living things, especially uh, human beings. Or you weren't supposed to draw images of, of God, etc. And also in Christianity, there's been debates over whether it's right to display religious figures um, in art. And we know in, in the Byzantine uh, era, and this is where the word iconoclast comes from, there was this religious upheaval where people thought religious icons were blasphemous, and there was this kind of mass destruction of religious paintings and uh, statuary. And to this day, there's Christian sects that believe you're not supposed to depict Jesus uh, or depict holy figures. And I'm thinking even, I, I think, in Protestant sects, we often just see a cross instead of um, the actual, you know, the gory image of Christ hanging on the cross that we see in Catholicism, the religion that I was brought up in. And a lot of people think that uh, statues of Jesus, statues of the Virgin Mary are that they qualify as graven images. They actually go against the uh, Ten Commandments where it says you're not supposed to worship graven images. So it's interesting. But nevertheless, uh, I imagine believers are probably vastly outraged by this. Um, where I, I'm go I mean, I hope I don't offend my listeners who happen to be believers, but I side with the kid. As awful as it might sound to some of your ears, I get kind of uh, an irreverent kick out of the story. Um, and it's funny, on a more serious note, I remember, uh, I believe the artist's last name was Serrano. This was probably like a decade or more ago, but there was this big uproar because this artist um, had an exhibit, and part of the ex exhibit was a piece called, uh, and cover your ears if you're easily offended, Piss Christ. And um, it was literally just a crucifix dunked in urine. Um, and people were very outraged. I even remember hearing uh, Christopher Hitchens, 
It might have been during like a roundtable discussion called The Four Horsemen that you can find on YouTube that he did with Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. And they were talking about how they were offended by things like Piss Christ, in, which is kind of surprising to me. And as an artist, because um, I've been sketching and drawing since I can remember, and I have a degree in graphic design, I'm an art lover, etc. Uh, as an artist, I don't think that Piss Christ was anything great. It, it might, if it offends me at all, it might offend me as an artist because all it is is an object, you know, submerged in urine. Um, it doesn't display any great amount of artistic uh, talent or anything. But I support things like uh, Serrano's Piss Christ in a way because I think it's good to make people think. And it's good to make religious people think about perhaps the superstitious nature of their beliefs and uh, what really is sacred and what isn't. And should we consider physical objects as, as being divine? Or um, I just think it's good to make believers and non-believers alike to, to think about things like that. Where does freedom of speech end? Uh, you know, why do you get upset when you see a crucifix dumped in urine? Do you have some superstitious reaction that you think that crucifix had some kind of divine properties and um, some, there's some kind of bad mojo that's going to happen if you, you know, disrespect it? Or are you just personally offended because you feel like someone's disrespecting your beliefs? Uh, I think it's good to make people think like that. And I remember uh, when I was going for my graphic design degree, we had to go to the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts once. And um, there was some kind of display near the front of the museum. It was, it was some kind of uh, farm animal, maybe a sheep or something, that was uh, in like a tank of formaldehyde. And I just remember I was like very turned off by it. It wasn't art to me. I'd rather not look at it. But I believe in the uh, artist's right to do it. And uh, I believe in the museum's right to display it. Me personally, I'd rather look at the ancient Egyptian artifacts and the uh, Renaissance paintings and things like that uh, than stare at you know, a cross or an animal <laughs> floating in some kind of grotesque fluid or whatever. Um, but I believe in the artist's right to do those things. And uh, whether or not the government should subsidize things like that. Uh, that's a different matter. You know, I, I don't think that the government should have to fund controversial artists or anything like that. But I certainly believe in the artist's right to express themselves. I actually think it's a good thing when they get people to, uh, to think or challenge people's uh, superstitious beliefs or challenge the, uh, the bounds of free speech. But that being said, I think I'm going to make a liar out of myself and just do that one news story. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. And um, please, Speedwalker 5 and the rest of you, don't delete the podcast. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel. You can uh, like the show on Facebook. Please do that, by the way. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter, listen on Stitcher. You can contribute to the show through the official Weekend Out Podbean page. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. You can use the PayPal widget and donate as little as 99 cents. Currently, 
the funding of the show comes completely out of my pocket. Uh, you know, the hosting and all, all that. So that being said, until next week. All right, thanks. Thanks.